Good morning, church. Would you guys give a hand for the worship team? Thank you, guys. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. Well, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Chad Lowe. I'm one of the pastors here at Tri-Village Church, and I'm so thankful that you are with us this morning, that you've come to partake in a service with us. We are so thankful that you're here. One of the things that we say here at Tri-Village Church, we have a saying that a lot of churches say that you're welcome here. We, we, we truly believe that. We truly believe you're welcome. We're not going to tell you you're not welcome here. But we believe it's more than that. We believe at Tri-Village Church that you are wanted, you are welcomed, and you are needed. We want you here, we want you to feel welcomed here, but you are needed here. And so we're so grateful that you are a part of what's happening here at Tri-Village Church. We're thankful that you get to worship with us and we get to study God's word together. So thank you so much for being here. If you're new here, you also don't know that we've been going through a series called Restored. It's a six-week series where we're going through the book of Nehemiah. Um, we're going through the restoration and renewal that takes place in the book of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is a book that's all about spiritual revival, spiritual restoration, as we look at the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Even though it takes place in the middle of the Old Testament from where you flip through it, it actually is the last book of the Old Testament. This is about 400 years before Jesus arrives. And so this is the final account as, as Jerusalem is being rebuilt and restored after the Israelites have been in exile. And so what we see here from, from this book is that Nehemiah is leading his nation, not just in the rebuilding of wall, but the restoration of the people. And so we were praying throughout this series that we too would experience renewal revival, that we would experience the revival of the Lord, that we would be restored. So I, I, I encourage you and I, I ask you to pray with us that, that we would experience revival and that from that we would also seek the pursuing of the restoration of the city, of our world, of the space where we live. And so we're going through this and we're going through these six weeks and we're looking at different segments, different ingredients, if you will, of that revival of spiritual renewal that are actually through the values that we have as a church. And so today, that value that we're going to be going through that we see in the text of Nehemiah chapter 5, which is where we're going to be, um, we are going to be looking at the, the cause of justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. Now, if you are exploring Christianity, if you're here today and you don't know where you stand, God is just kind of, you, you're trying to figure things out. We are so glad you're here. Actually, we started this church for people just like you. But what I'm going to do is I'm addressing my brothers and sisters who affirm that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. I have, a, I have a call to you. If you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then you are called to be agents of restoration. This isn't an optional thing. Justice and mercy is a missional thing. And so if you guys would put this on the screen, we are called to seek and care for the under-resourced and the vulnerable. We are called to that. And so we're going to see how this plays out in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. And we're going to see how Nehemiah exemplifies this, the fruition of this call. But before we dive in, I want us to get a picture, a picture of what this looks like to seeking the care for the under-resourced and the vulnerable. And it comes from theologian John Calvin. He says this, First of all, Christians ought, not to, or ought to imagine themselves in the place of the person who needs their help. They ought to sympathize with him as though they themselves were suffering. They ought to show real mercy and humanness and offer their assistance as readily as if it was for themselves. Heartfelt pity will banish arrogance and reproach and will prevent contempt and domineering over the poor and the needy. And we see that Nehemiah embodies this, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. 
So if you have your Bibles, we do open up to Nehemiah chapter 5, and we will be looking at Nehemiah chapter 5, 1 through 13. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? One of the things we do at our church is we read out of reverence for the word of the Lord. If you're with me, say amen. Amen. All right. It's also on the screen, so if you're not with me, you can keep up. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have subjected our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with people and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews that were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they had nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and avoid the reproach of the Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and men are also lending money to the people and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, olive groves, and houses. Also the interest that you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and the possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. And so such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we read your word, as we study justice and mercy, Lord, show us your justice and your mercy. Help us to see injustice around us. Help us to be grieved over injustice. Help us to see the injustice within us, how we perpetuate the problem. Let us be quick to repentance, Lord. I pray that as we study your word, as we are moved by what's happening in Nehemiah, Lord, let your spirit be what guides and directs us. Let the words that I say, let the the message that is preached be honoring and glorifying to you. Let your spirit move in it to open our eyes, soften our hearts, open our ears, direct our actions. Transform us, God. We need you. We long for you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Praise in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So chapter five of Nehemiah is bookended by two different forms of opposition. Where we were at last week when Pastor Kyle preached on Nehemiah chapter three is very different than where we are today. Chapter three shows the the work of all the people of Israel, the joint unity to rebuild the wall. It's a beautiful picture and it's a, a picture of the church. It's a picture of what we see when God's people set aside their socioeconomic political differences and work towards the mission that God has for them. And beautiful restoration takes place. But then 
Chapter 4 is opposition, where right before this passage, Nehemiah and the people are preparing themselves to be attacked by enemy nations. And so what they're doing is that as some people are working, the rest are guarding, and they swap shifts so that some can guard and others work, but all of them are strapped with weapons because they don't know when the opposition is going to come. Chapter six, on the other side of chapter five, has another outside opposition where people are trying to trick up Nehemiah into disobeying and defrauding the Lord. They're trying to get him to do unspeakable acts and to sin against God so that they can wipe them out. So on the bookends of chapter five, we see opposition from outside, but chapter five, we see opposition from within. And so this building project, this mission that Nehemiah has been given by God is being halted because of the opposition of internal turmoil. And so as we look at this, as we talk about justice and we see the cry for mercy in this chapter, we're going to look at a few different headings and and look at this issue of justice and mercy. First, by revealing injustice. We, we want to be seeing the injustice, not just in the passage, but in the world around us. We want to have injustice revealed. And then how do we respond to injustice? What is our action? What do we do in light of the injustice that we are now revealed to? And then lastly, restoring justice. How can we pursue a world where justice and mercy are restored? So let's dive in. Revealing injustice. So this is the very beginning of chapter five, this outcry that we hear. It's wives and men who have been working and laboring over this wall. They've been serving the Lord, but now there's a problem. And there's actually three tiers of problem that we see here, three categories of people. We see three different dispositions of where people are at. So in verse two, we see that some are crying out because they have families. It's families with children and there's too many people and not enough food. They need grain. So the first cry is the cry of hunger. Actually, all of the cries are cries of hunger. But the second cry, we see that people have mortgages, or they have fields, they have vineyards, they have homes. They have other property But because they are hungry, they've had, or because the the work has been um, laborious, they've had to mortgage their fields in order to get money for food, in order that they can provide for their family. So you have some that are selling what they have in order to provide with food. And then lastly, there's others who, who have these property, have these fields, have revenue coming from the land that they own, but the king is taxing them. They still have to pay the king's tax. And then on top of that, not only do they have the king's tax, but they also are being charged interest for the loans that they have on their own fields. And then on top of that, because they're spiraling in debt, they have to find a way to pay off the loans that they owe, so they're selling their children into slavery. Which is not uncommon. We actually read in Deuteronomy that that is okay in the sense of in seven years that that child is restored, that worker is restored, that the the debt is forgiven. But that's not the way that these people are being treated here. This is more like actual slavery and less like hired hands. And so what we see here is that these people are powerless. Now, a a little side note on the king's tax, if you just want to understand how financially uh, divided and how the financial deficit that's taking place here is the king's tax was anywhere between 40 and 70 percent of revenue earned. 40 to 70 percent. Imagine that you got a paycheck, but you only got 30, 35 percent of it. Living off of that, And then to make ends meet, you're having your fields be mortgaged and you're paying loans on that, which is anywhere up to 20%. So they're paying out these taxes, paying out these loans. 
This is a really dire situation. To make matters even worse than that, if that wasn't bad enough, because everyone has been committed to the work of building the wall, they haven't been able to work in the fields. So crops have been down, food is scarce. And then to make matters worse than that, there's a famine. So the crops that are provided are being destroyed. So we see that they are hungry, that there is, they're worried that this is a really terrible situation. And if you're like, man, that is bad, it gets worse. The nobles and officials, the very people who are supposed to protect them, are exploiting them. The people who are wealthy are capitalizing on the poor. And so the wealthy are getting wealthier and the poor are getting poorer. And there's a bigger disparity between the haves and the haves-nots. We see that there are children who are being put into slavery and that families are, be broken. Families are getting broken apart. This is a messed up, dire situation. So in verse one, it says that there was a great outcry against their fellow Jews. This word outcry in Hebrew literally means screaming or yelling. It's a deep emotional gut response. It's a longing, a cry for help. And it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament as well. Two notable points where this word outcry is used. The first is in Genesis. And it's the outcry that comes out of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah from the victims of the city that was destroyed for their wickedness. The second is the outcry of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt who for 400 years were oppressed. So this outcry isn't just a town hall meeting where people are coming to Nehemiah and saying, uh, we have issues. This is instead deep anguish. This is mothers who's watching their children starve to death. These are fathers who are watching their sons and daughters be enslaved and mistreated. It's tremendous injustice. And the outcry is now reaching Nehemiah. So, now that we've seen the outcry in here, and it's bad, aren't you all glad that you came this morning? You're like, this is really lighthearted. Um, this heaviness, we see the injustice that's taking place in this passage. When, when I was reading through this and studying, I was, I've also been reading a, an author, pastor, counselor, Paul Tripp, and he talks about the fact that we all have an inner longing for paradise. Now, not just like paradise in the sense of going on a, a really nice vacation, but paradise in the sense that we long for a world where wrong is made right. We long for a world of heaven. We long where injustice is met with justice. We long for a world that is good. And these cries, these outcries are longings for restoration. They're longings for paradise. They're saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And I'm longing for a place where, the, where it is how it's supposed to be. And that's heaven. And so for us, we actually see that there's actually a lot of longings and cryings that we see in the world that are very similar to the way it was in Israel. It doesn't take much. You can just turn on the news and you get to see all the injustices that are happening in our own space and in the world around us. You see countries that are war-torn, leaving villages, entire people groups decimated. You see corrupt governments that are making it unsafe for even countries to be inhabited. You see tsunamis and, and hurricanes and tornadoes and natural disasters that leave people homeless, familyless, possessionless. But not only that, not only those extremes, not only those big picture things, but there's also smaller scale things. 
Smaller injustice, smaller cries for restoration. It's the kid at school who's getting bullied. It's a cry for restoration. It's the spouse who's been cheated on. It's a cry for restoration. It's the person with special needs who's been an outcast. It's a cry for restoration. It's the kid who can't speak up for himself, but is neglected at home. It's a cry for restoration. It's the person who's experienced a loss, whether that's the job, a family member, or friendship, cries for restoration. It's the person who has to watch their family be deported. It's a cry for restoration. It's the refugee who's moving in down the street because their place is no longer safe to live. It's a cry for restoration. It's the mother who's grieving the child they will never meet. It's a cry for restoration. We see injustices in the world around us. Sin has effects in our lives. Whether it's direct or indirect, we still have a longing for, what, for wrong to be made right. We have a longing for injustice to be met with justice, for evil to be met with good. And our prayer is that we would see, that it be revealed to us, the injustices around us. This week, I've actually been praying that. I've been praying, Lord, please help me to see the injustice around us. And Lord, help me to see the injustice within me. It's a dangerous prayer to pray because he answers that prayer. He shows you where you are perpetuating the problem, where you aren't just a victim, but you are the perpetrator. And I encourage us to pray that prayer, that we would be courageous enough to pray, Lord, help me to see where injustice is happening in the world around me. And help me to see where injustice is happening because of me. It's a dangerous prayer. So what prevents us, what keeps us from praying that, what keeps us from seeing the injustices around us, what keeps us from gazing out and seeing the the evils that are happening in the world? Well, there's a lot of things, but we're going to focus on two things. The first is selfishness. We are selfish, and so we're too consumed with our own world, with our own kingdoms, with the building of our own establishments that we don't even focus and we drown out the world around us. If it doesn't affect us directly, then let's just let it be. I mean, life is tough, so suck it up, buttercup. Like, you just need to get on with your life and let me do mine. Selfishness blocks us and blinds us from seeing injustice. It blocks us from having empathy or sympathy or compassion for the broken and the hurting because we're too consumed with our own mess. Newsflash for you, everybody has problems. Just because you have a problem doesn't mean that you can't care about someone else's. Just because you have issues in your life doesn't mean that you can't do something about someone else's. We are all called to see the injustice around us. Have you ever considered that maybe you are the perpetuator or whatever, you know, you, you encourage injustice rather than you prevent it? Maybe you feel like you're the victim, but maybe you're the accuser. The second is apathy. We just don't care. I mean, there's so much hurt in the world. Just turn on the news, and it's really not news. It's just bad things happen today. And so you just watch, and it's like, well, what can I do? So I'm just going to keep doing me. I'm going to focus on my family. I'm, gonna be, I'm just indifferent. Like, I'm doing my part by just being me, right? But our indifference is actually hurting people. Our negligence is oppression. Whether we're oppressing people directly or indirectly, people are still being hurt by the injustice of our apathy. Apathy blinds us to seeing injustice in the world around us. So hopefully now you have 
stirred in you uh, some emotions, some feelings, some longings for maybe even just giving someone who's hurting a hug. Maybe if that's just the bare minimum of it, you, you, you see a, and a longing that there is injustice in the world and I need to be aware of it. I need to see it for what it is. Now that we see the, the need for injustice to be revealed, let's look at how are we supposed to respond to it? What do we do once we see it? How do we act? What are we called to do? So that's a great question. You guys are all really smart. Let's look at verse 6. And well, let's look at Nehemiah and how he responds to injustice. So from 6 to the end of our section for, through verse 13, we're going to see his great response, but then also the outcome that is produced from this response. It's remarkable. So let's look at, let's look at um, Nehemiah, starting in Nehemiah 5, verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people for them to be sold back to us. And they all kept quiet. They had nothing to say. So he continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and avoid the reproach from our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and men are also lending people money and, gain, and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and all the interest that you have charged them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their houses and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise so that such a person may be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. This is remarkable because not only did Nehemiah respond, but the people repented. And they acted differently. They saw the error of their ways and they corrected, right? It's a tremendous response. It's a tremendous act of leadership. But let's, let's hone in and see what, what Nehemiah does. And, and let's look at this and unpack it a little bit. The first thing that happens is Nehemiah gets very angry. He becomes very angry. And you might see that seems kind of like an odd response. Like, are, are we promoting anger? Well, we see later in Scripture in Ephesians, it says, be angry and do not sin. Now, I don't know if... if Nehemiah was fully embracing the, the full righteous anger or, or unrighteous anger, but we do know that his anger brought about righteousness. And so what we see is that there's several things that Nehemiah was probably upset about. The first and obvious one is that his own people are being oppressed. And not only his own people are being oppressed and that angering him, but his own people are the ones who are oppressing his own people. They're supposed to be fixated on fixing the wall, but people are exploiting the poor and the broken. And he gets angry. He's angry because he also has a project that he has to fulfill. He, he, he not only has opposition from the outside, but now he has opposition from the inside. Imagine the stress of this leader. I doubt Nehemiah really wanted to be in this position. He's angry. Now you might imagine when someone's angry that the next thing they do is, all right, they're going to bust some heads. Like this is, people are going to get whipped back into shape. This is going to be good. Nehemiah is going to come out and he's going to tell them what's what. It's going to be great. But notice what Nehemiah does next. He doesn't go and slaps people upside the head. He doesn't go and start like creating battles and wars and fighting the people, the nobles and the officials. This isn't an act of revolt. Excuse me, an act of revolt. But what we see is that he pauses. 
He waits. He ponders. It's so easy to miss because in verse 7 it says, I pondered them in my mind. And then we jump right into the action, right? But we need to wait. We need to sit here for a moment. He went from being angry to waiting. You know, so, many, so often we can respond to crisis with crisis. We can respond to overwhelming circumstances with really poor immediate actions. What Nehemiah does is he sees this urgent demand for his attention, this urgent demand for his leadership, and he ponders. He pauses. He is welled with emotion, and then he waits. This is so, so crucial. Because Nehemiah's response is not one that makes people feel marginalized themselves, but spurs people to action. His pause is a dependence on someone greater. Then we see the next thing he does is he confronts. He, he uses the position and platform that he has been given to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. He uses the position of leadership that he has to lead those who aren't leading as they should. He is using his position as the person who is building the wall to also use his position to rebuild the people. So instead of casting and driving people out, he's bringing them together. He confronts them. He tells them exactly what's wrong. That you are not only undermining and undercutting our people, but you're causing them to be enslaved. You went from freedom to slavery. How could you enslave your brothers and sisters? You have experienced freedom. How could you reinforce slavery? What an indictment. But now it's, it's crucial. We can look at this and go, man, Nehemiah, what a leader. We have to get like a podcast on this guy. Like we need to just get this going. Like this is the examples of leader, leadership right here. Like he motivates people. He responds to crisis really well. He engages in, in decision-making and, and confronting people as they should. Like this guy's great. We should write a book on the five keys to leadership from Nehemiah 5, right? And it would just sell because it sounds good. And Will and I would buy it because we love things that fit like that. But still, that's not the point of this. The point isn't to look at Nehemiah as a leader. Although he is that. He absolutely is that. The point is to look at how he was the leader. The point is to look at what caused him to be able to lead in this way. And he says it in verse 9. He says, what you are doing is not right. Or in other translations, you are sinning. And then he responds with, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? That's his correction to them. Everything that Nehemiah does, the lens through which he sees this injustice, is done through the lens of the fear of the Lord. It's not through the fear of man, but the fear of God that causes him to meet injustice with justice. So what is it to fear the Lord? What does it mean to fear the Lord? How do we fear the Lord? Well, fearing the Lord, to put it simply, is to adore, to revere God. What that means is we understand that God is holy. And because he's holy, he dispels, he destroys sin. Like me. I'm sinful. And for me to be in the presence of a holy God means my destruction. But not only is he holy, but he's holy good. And so he satisfies my deepest and every need. He is holy good, and so he brings about true justice, true mercy. So this God who is holy is holy good. So I revere him for his holiness, and I adore him for his goodness. This is the fear of the Lord. 
King Solomon says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and we want to be wise. The New Testament talks about the fear of the Lord in this way. You've probably heard it, but maybe never connected it. The fear of the Lord has everything to do with our affections, our longings, our desires. It's all about desire. And it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That is the fear of the Lord. Love the Lord your God with everything you are. Because once you fear the Lord, then you can love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself if you aren't loving the Lord your God first. If you're too consumed with you, you're only going to care about you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the fear of the Lord. And it causes us a heart that yearns, that breaks, that longs for restoration for our neighbors. That's the fear of the Lord. One of the, the ways or, or an example of this is, it comes from A.W. Tozer. He says, when men no longer fear God, they transgress his law without hesitation. The fear of consequence is no deterrent when the fear of God is gone. And to say it differently, Oswald Chambers says this, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. When you fear God, you have nothing to fear. When you don't fear God, you have to fear everything. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is what allows us to know that we are loved by God and that we get to love others because of God. One of the great ways that we see this lived out in Scripture is right before Jesus actually is crucified, he shares this story, this example of what it looks like to marry the two things together, to long for restoration, to long for paradise, to long for our forever home, and to fear the Lord. And how that overflows, how that overindulges into a love of people, into a care for our neighbor. And it's from this, in Matthew chapter 25. It'll be on the screens behind me. You can turn there if you'd like, but Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31, and it says this, when the Son of Man comes, this is Jesus speaking, in his glory and the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a sheep separates sheep from its goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, a forever home. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Do you see the affection here? Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you, thirsty and give you something to drink? When did, when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison? And when, when did we go to visit you, Lord? The king will reply, I tell you, whatever you have done for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. But then here's the flip. Our God who is good is also holy. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, to eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. You can see the defensiveness here. And then they'll respond, oh Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or, or a stranger needing clothes or sick or in prison? When did we not help you, God? And he'll reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. Amen. The fear of the Lord is what enables us to love our brothers and sisters. Right. The failure to fear the Lord causes us to marginalize, Jesus. to exploit our brothers and sisters. Amen. We see this problem perpetuate in the book of Nehemiah. This is the issue that Nehemiah is faced with. And it's the fear of the Lord that causes him to see the injustice at hand and to respond in a way that not just leads the oppressed to, to salvation or to restoration, but it also leads the oppressors to grace. Both the oppressed and the oppressors come together and worship the Lord. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. But what is a barrier that keeps us from fearing the Lord? What's a barrier that, allow, that inhibits us from stepping into that, from being able to care not only for us, but for the people around us? And I think the big one that we've already identified is fear of man. See, the fear of man is when we do the exact same things that we're supposed to for God, but for someone or something else. It's when I adore, when I revere, when I worship someone else, something else. I'm afraid that what that person does to me will have a lasting effect on me, and so I fear them. I'm afraid that this will be the end of my success or my affluence or my, my, my ability to succeed, and so I fear them. You see, just like Oswald Chambers said, the failure to fear the Lord causes you to fear everything else. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. He says, There is no sin so prevalent, so insidious, so deep as the sin of fearing people more than we fear God. The fear of man. So we are called to fear the Lord. That is how we seek the care and restoration of the broken and vulnerable. That is how we ourselves receive care and restoration in our brokenness and in our vulnerability. The fear of the Lord. Loving him with our entire being and then loving our neighbors as ourselves. So now we've seen the need to have injustice revealed, and then we see how we are to respond. What do we do? How does justice actually get restored? How is it that, that this, this great task of displaying justice, how do we do that? How is re justice restored? So that's what we're going to look at, restoring justice. Now here's the deal. Here's the problem. There is so much injustice, even in this room, that we can't deal with it. There's so much injustice just outside these doors that you can't change it. There's so much injustice in our world that you could try and try and try, but there will be more and more and more. Why? Sin. You see, not only are you trying to, to mitigate and trying to respond to injustice, but the problem is, is that you're the problem. The reason that injustice is in the world is because you exist. Because I exist. So I can't be the solution to my problem if I'm the problem to my problem. I can't be the justice in the world when I continue to perpetuate injustice. It has to be someone greater. It has to be someone better. 
and his name is Jesus Christ. The only way we can find true restoration to the injustice in the world is found in the shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He took on the greater injustice so that we could experience the greater justice. He became weak so that we might be strong. He died so that we might live. Jesus took on the greater injustice. Jesus gave up the glories of heaven to endure the rejection on earth. He was rejected by those he created. He was falsely accused and brought into court. Jesus was beaten by those in power to protect. Jesus was murdered by his own people. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become his righteousness. Jesus endured the greater injustice. But not only that, we need a greater leader. And Jesus is the greater leader. He is the greater Nehemiah. He is building the greater kingdom. Nehemiah was moved by injustice, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Nehemiah walked in the fear of the Lord. Jesus submit to the will of his father. Nehemiah brought restoration for his people. Jesus redeems and restores broken sinners like you and me. Jesus confronted our greatest sin. It wasn't starvation. It wasn't inner turmoil. It was eternal damnation. Jesus offers a greater sacrifice. He bore our wrath that we deserve so that we could experience the glory that he deserves. Jesus is our greater Nehemiah. He is our greater leader, and he is the only way that we can have restored justice. It can't be through us. It has to be through him. And it comes through the fear of the Lord. It comes through that, through, through adoring him, through revering him, through loving him, that we can then be ambassadors and reconcilers of mercy and justice in our broken world. It's only through the fear of the Lord. It's only through the fear of the Lord. So from here, as we, as we go, there are a few next steps that you can have. These, these aren't necessarily application points, but maybe you're wondering, like, how do I pursue the fear of the Lord in my life? And maybe this is the first time you've ever even thought about injustice in the world. Maybe this is the first time that you've even been confronted with your own injustice in you. And so for all of us, if you've never pursued seeking the restoration of people, then, the, then we need to be praying. All of us. This is the, wherever you're at, we need to pray. Pray, like I said, that we would see the injustice in the world around us. But not only injustice around us, pray that we would see injustice within us. Amen. That we could be drawn to repentance. Because if we don't deal with injustice within us, if we don't let the Lord take control of that, then we, have, we can never, ever, ever pursue the injustice around us. So the first thing is to pray. The second is maybe out of that, the Lord is stirring in your heart to, to take on a cause. There are a few things that some of you have already been done in this church, like safe families, caring for um, children who are in dire need of care immediately because of family situations. There, there are other ways that we seek to pursue the, the reconciliation and the advancement of our community, and that's CareFest or Puente or Crossroads, which are after-school ministries. Maybe it's becoming an activist for abortion or against abortion, but for poverty and, and caring for the least of these for people who can't speak for themselves. Like Nehemiah, taking the sphere of influence that you have, the platform that the Lord has given you, and doing what he is calling you to do with it. It doesn't mean you need to go to any leader, but it means that you need to be obedient to the leader of leaders. That you need to listen to what he's calling you to do. Maybe from that, it's to go even deeper and start giving generously of your time, your money, and your skills. We saw Nehemiah, he disadvantaged himself for the advancement of his fellow brothers and sisters. More than that, Jesus disadvantaged himself eternally so that we could be advantaged eternally. Amen. The divine Lord 
squeezed into finite humanity and died on our behalf so that we could experience the extravagance of eternity. How are we called to disadvantage ourselves for the advancement of others? Maybe it's your time, maybe it's your money, maybe it's your skills. Do you see your life? Do you see your possessions? Do you see your relationships as means of reconciliation for a broken world? Let's pray. Father God, we come to you. We look to you because you are truly where our help comes from. You are the maker of heaven and earth. You are the Lord of lords and the King of kings. God, we ask that you you would stir in our hearts to see the injustices that we bring about in this world. You would stir in our heart to see the ways that we perpetuate the problem. And Lord, that we'd be quick to repent. But Lord, give us eyes to see the injustice around us and the way that we can show the truth and the love that you have for us, your great love for us that casts out fear. And Lord, that we can live in the fear of the Lord, the adoration of you, the love of you. And that through that, we would love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Change us, transform us. Give us eyes to see the world the way you see it. Give us eyes to see ourselves the way you see us. We pray this in your name. Amen.